Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here to teach the Word of God. And today we're in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 17. I'll read that section while we're still on the title slide and pray, and we'll dig into the text that we have to learn from today. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 17, I'm reading from the ESV. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that everything you've inspired, we're here to learn. You've, you've given us the scripture so we might not be deceived by the ways of the world. Give us wisdom and understanding as we study your word and consider the implications of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go to verse 15, I'm going to start with just the first part of it. You notice here, it begins with that rhetorical question that we've seen often in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know, that's the rhetorical question, that your bodies are members of Christ? So this particular do you not know is often used in 1 Corinthians. This is the sixth time it's used in 1 Corinthians. And the implication, as I've mentioned before, when we've run across this question, do you not know? Now, remember, Paul had spent a year and a half personally teaching in Corinth, where the church was founded, and they were well taught. But they didn't always behave, act, believe like they really took to heart what they've been taught. So do you not know implies You ought to know. You ought to know, but some things are happening that would indicate that Paul wonders whether they are taking seriously the truths and the implications of what they've been taught. So what's the context? Remember, a couple weeks ago I preached on verses 13 and 14. God raised the Lord... It will raise believers. Now, there's some implications that are coming from that. Let me read 1 Corinthians 6, 13b and 14 to remind us of the context. There it says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. When I preached on that a couple weeks ago, We pointed out that one of the ideas that was developed in the ancient world, the world of Paul at that time, was that the body, some thought, was not really that significant. And that the only thing that matters was the world of of spirituality. And that continued to develop even after the death of the apostles in what became Gnosticism. So it's very possible that some in Corinth were thinking 
Since the only thing that matters is what's spiritual or immaterial, the body really is not that significant. And then some, some libertines, took the, that even further and thought, well, it doesn't really matter what I do in the body. It doesn't really mean anything. But here, Paul is rebuking that idea. It does matter. In fact, deeds done in the body will be what's taken account into account, the future judgment. And he is correcting some in Corinth who thought, it's no big deal what I go do. So that's what is on the table here as we study this and we learn. So in the context, the body is for the Lord, shows that it matters what we do. Actions matter, as well as attitudes and so on. The word members, melos, is used three times in verse 15. And then it won't be used again in 1 Corinthians until 13 times in chapter 12, but in a different context. 1 Corinthians is a notoriously difficult book, and I go slowly through it, and I spend a lot of time explaining because it's an essential book, but often misunderstood and often misused. So I'll try to get the categories correct in our minds. Paul uses the body and our relationship to the body in two different ways. Here he's talking about the individual person. The individual believer belongs to the Lord. What the individual believer does matters because actions are significant, including uh, the sort of uh, immorality he's rebuking here. In chapter 12, he's talking about the body of Christ corporately being joined to the head, Jesus Christ, and how each member of the body of Christ, all of whom are joined to the head, have different gifts and callings and why we need each other. We'll get to that later when we get to chapter 12. Here it's talking about the individual. When we talk about the temple, we'll talk about that as well. So the person who would think it's okay to go down to the temple prostitutes is being told the body's for the Lord, not for immorality. Dr. Fee says this, the, this affirmation stands in bold contrast to the Corinthian view of spirituality, which apparently looked for a spiritual salvation that would finally be divested of the body. Paul, therefore, and when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, will talk about the importance of the bodily resurrection, the resurrection of the body. It's, a, it's an essential doctrine to refute any such error. He furthermore says, Dr. Fee, lying behind this form of spirituality is a Greek view developed the idea of such a view developed the idea of the immortality of the soul. That is, the spirit somehow is immortal, but the body, along with the rest of the material order, destined for destruction. Here's what 
Fee says, and I agree with him, this is a totally pagan view. It's a pagan view. The body is not important. There's just this ultimate spiritual reality. Sadly, the paganism of this sort of thinking has consistently, through the centuries, found various expressions in churches and in uh, Christendom. And it's, it's actually out there still today. To have a full biblical worldview, we need to always keep in mind that to God, the whole person matters. Not just the spirit. Now, some would be trichotomous, body, soul, and spirit. The whole person, I believe, that material and immaterial, the person matters to God, and the resurrection will be the resurrection of the body, as it says later. Now, let's go to the second half of this verse. Here is another rhetorical question. Shall then, given that fact, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Then he answers his own question. Never. Now, his answer here is used a number of times in the New Testament. In the Greek, it's meganoita. Meganoita. And ginomai uh, means to be or to be in existence. And this is in an unusual mood, optative, but negated. May it never even come into existence, or may I never even have to think about this. It's so abhorrent that Paul uses the strongest terminology to say, some of your translations may say, perish the thought. May it never be. ESE has never explanation mark. So the, the idea is this is not even something that one should have to contemplate because it's so shameful. But the reality is that not only in the time when Paul was still on the scene of history, writing to a church where he had spent a year and a half, in the Greek world that such things were seen as commonplace and no big deal, but throughout the millennia since then, again and again, similar errors, wicked behaviors, bad thinking, false religion, some in the name of Christianity have arisen, and it, therefore, in the scripture here, we need to deal with it. Each individual person here, as I said, belongs to the Lord. In chapter 12, we'll go to the corporate understanding of the body of Christ. Future non-existence. <laughs> Optimally, this will not even come into existence. May it never be. Paul uses, shall I then? So he, he uses a literary device, put himself in the first person here. Shall I do this? In other words, the individual. Paul the apostles thinking, no, never, never, contemplating this. Dr. Gardner says this, in 12, 12 to 27, Paul takes this analogy further and looks, looks more deeply at what it means 
to be in the Christian community. I'm looking forward to getting to chapter 12, but we still have 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. But uh, should the Lord carry and everything else go how it goes, I trust that we'll be able to get there. I love teaching the whole counsel of God. This is important to realize. Each member matters in the body of Christ, but right now we're talking about the person, the individual person. Gardner points out here, his main purpose is to speak of how Christians relate to Christ himself, the one who has been raised bodily from the dead, and our bodies we are to be for him, says Gardner, Zondervan, excuse me, Zondervan, exegetical commentary of the New Testament. Here's my statement on that. Each believer belongs to Christ. Each believer is to be committed to serving Christ. In that context, to be joined to the prostitute must never happen. Actions matter. Beliefs matter. Behavior matters. And antinomianism, which means to be against the law, is false. It's not biblical. And frankly, there's not much support in the pagan culture in which we live for a biblical worldview or the sort of behavior that is right and godly. We need to know God's will directly from the Bible. The Greek culture of their day certainly was opposed to anything Christian. Let's go to verse 16. Here it comes again, another rhetorical question. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul references Genesis 2.24. So let's put this together. It's very significant. This is further indication that God has ordained the use of the body in marriage to be between a man and a wife, as indicated in Genesis. To show this, I pointed out the Greek words used here. Joined, kalao, means to glue or to fasten, to glue together. I've heard messages at Christian marriage ceremonies that point this out. You to be glued to one another as a, as a bond that can't be separated without doing serious damage. In Genesis 2.24 in the Septuagint, by the way, LXX, I remember the first time I put that on a slide, someone said, all right, what does that mean? Why do you put that up there? It means it's just Roman numerals for 70. It saves space. The 70 would be the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in that particular uh, translation, and in the Greek, I have both. This is proskalao, also to glue, there with the prefix, which would make it even stronger, proskalao, to be glued together. 
And so my statement is this. The whole person belongs to the Lord, including the body. So for this reason, Genesis 224, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. New American Standard it says in the, uh, the other translation, to cleave. Have you heard it said, leave and cleave? That's one way to remember it, leave and cleave. Again, do you not know, the seventh time Paul has gotten this report from Chloe's people, and then plus there's been letters, a previous letter, we'll get to that in chapter 7. He's written before to them. We don't know all the content. We read by, we discovered by looking at what's said here. So there's a dispute, and he's calling on them. Do you not know? Why is this happening? Why are you acting this way? Why are you thinking this way? Do you not know? You have been taught. Do you not know? Genesis 2.24. So this is sacred and important. So here's the seventh time he asks the rhetorical question, do you not know? In 1 Corinthians. Again, Dr. Garland says, if a Christian joins himself to a prostitute, and if the prostitute represents forces opposed to God, this immoral act has aligned the Christian over against God, says um, the, the Garland in his commentary. The primary concern is how this act violates one's relationship to Christ. And as we see, there's many things that are wrong morally with prostitution, and you, you could cite many damages that are done to society or to persons who are sold into such things, and they did that. In the ancient world still happens today. But the particular concern here is the damage done to the Christian who thinks this isn't a big problem. And there's a spiritual issue going on, and I'll be talking about that a little bit as we get to some more slides, and that is in Corinth, they had temple prostitution, lots of it. And this wasn't that unusual in that world. And there were people put into that situation as what happened. It was really bad, but they thought that this was a way to serve as a priestess or a way to connect with the deities out there or the world of the spirits. And this is abhorrent. No wonder he says, may it never be. But some men in Corinth who were part of the church were not thinking it was a big deal. So Garland rightly points out that this violates one's relationship to Christ. And then also, uh, he points out that in Deuteronomy 10.20, for example, Israel is commanded to fear the Lord their God, worship him alone, Hold fast to him, cleave to the Lord. Hezekiah is commanded for holding fast to the Lord and keeping his commandments. 2 Kings 18.6, the Septuagint translation. By contrast, Solomon, says Garland, is chided for doing what was evil in the Lord's sight by violating the Lord's command 
and loving and marrying many foreign women and clinging to them uh, to them in love, cleaving to these women with their idolatrous sentiments influenced him to turn his heart away to other gods, 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8. And so knowing the Old Testament again and again, this attraction, this temptation would draw people away from the Lord and into a horrible situation of apostasy against the Lord. And it would be an interesting, I know I wrote an article about this, but if you look at Balaam, there's a good example of that. Remember, Balaam was trying to curse Israel, and they were going to pay him big money to do it. His own donkey rebuked him, and he kept trying, but he ended up blessing Israel. But Balaam finally got the job done, not in that particular part, but later he said, okay, I can't curse Israel because they're right with God right now, and he's blessing them. Here's what you do. Send them your women and entice them away into immorality. And we, we see in Revelation and in Jude and in Peter, that's exactly what happened. They brought themselves under the curse by being drawn away from Yahweh. They weren't cursed because somebody uttered words. Now let's go to verse 17. <clears throat> but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Again, joined, kalao, same word in the Greek, glued to the Lord. And I want to explain this, bring in some of the context, and try to make this very clear, but also point out that some people that are evangelical Christians have tried to create, how would you say, some sort of a metaphysical version of what the Christian life means, by reading things into some of these passages that are in the, here for a different reason. In other words, uh, how can I say that? I've, I've run into many versions of this. Some people get revelations about breaking soul ties. Some have various anatomical schemes of sanctification. They're not biblical. And a passage like this would say, well, we have this spirit uh, unity with with the Lord, but then other things come in. So your spirit is sanctified, but your soul has a problem, and your body's even in worse shape. That's Washman Nee, written about that. Let's just narrow down to the issue at hand. You're joined to the Lord because you're part of the family of God. He adopted you in the family, as we heard earlier. You're part of him. He's you're born of the Spirit. You're spiritually joined to the Lord. So this spiritual relationship with the Lord is not to be abused. It's not to be abused and uh, through things that would be abhorrent to the Lord and to what it looks like to have a faithful relationship with the Lord. Paul just mentioned in verse 11 Chapter 6, the work of God, the Trinitarian work of sanctification. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Now, on to the context in Corinth. Corinth was known for temple prostitution. I did some research in, in the various books I have about this background. 
So I'll cite from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia on what it was like there in Corinth and elsewhere. Eretz and Corinth, it says, are known to have had vast numbers of temple prostitutes. Here they merely shared their gains with the temple with which they were connected. In 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20, he, Paul, shows that when the Christian goes to a harlot, he actually becomes one flesh with such a sinful person, which is a violation of the marriage covenant we saw earlier, Genesis 2.24. That's my comment. Back to uh, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. And a probable reference to the religious prostitution that was so rampant in Corinth, Paul says that one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells should not be joined to a prostitute. Such immorality is a sin against one's own body, which is the temple of God. We'll get to that in the next few verses um, in, a, in a few weeks when I preach again. The Christian should not, it says the Christian should rather glorify God with his body. So that'll be some more verses in 1 Corinthians. So we're bought with a price. We belong to the Lord. The Holy Spirit indwells the Christian. Not everyone in Corinth was married. Not every man was married. But in any regard, Paul was never married. This is not valid. This is not a, a, a behavior that should happen. And that they were doing so and not thinking it was even a problem. Even Paul, living in the pagan world there and confronting it all the time, was appalled that they couldn't see what was wrong with it. I'll quote again Dr. Fee. The illicit union is now contrasted to the believer's union with Christ. But he unites himself with the Lord as one spirit in him. It's with him in spirit, excuse me. Continue with Fee. In light of the coming conclusion, verses 19 through 20, Paul is almost certainly referring to the work of the Spirit, whereby through the one Spirit, the believer Spirit, is joined indissolubly. <laughs> See that word quickly. Indissolubly, it can't be dissolved. With Christ. <laughs> And he says the believer is united to the Lord, thereby has become one spirit with him. So don't go into substance theory and ontological claims, but on the simple fact, the believers joined to the Lord because we're born of the Spirit, we're part of his family, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, he points out that Paul's point is singular. And... Don't read into this. There's been so many strange things. The study of church history is rather uh, disheartening. And I've studied a lot of church history. I was made very, very interested in it immediately upon my conversion. And when I got to Bible college, I took a summer class from my favorite teacher studying historical theology, reading the writings of the early church fathers. But there's so much confusion, so much air. So much false spirituality, all the way from the libertines to the pietists. There are people who think being married to Christ means you take an oath 
of poverty and oath of chastity and join a convent. That is not biblical. That's not, that, that has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. And it's not saying that somebody who takes an oath and lives in a, some little hole in the wall or doesn't have anything to do with ordinary life is married to the Lord. But the person that's just an ordinary Christian really isn't. This is talking to all of the church, including men, and it's saying if you're a Christian, you're joining the Lord. That's it. It's the, read church history and you'll get a lot of error because it's everywhere. Study the scripture and you'll learn what the truth is. I'm not saying you don't study church history because I certainly have, but we need to go to scripture alone. Let me just say a little more and we'll put some applications to this to show how clear this is taught throughout the New Testament. Thief says Paul's point is singular. It does not have to do with the union of whole persons in sexual relationships, which is true in marriage, but irrelevant here. Nor does it have to do with the mystical union of the believer to Christ and through Christ to his body, the church, which is also irrelevant here. Whatever we, those things, important topics is not the point here. It's irrelevant. So see, and I'm agreeing with him. Paul's point is that the physical union of a believer with a prostitute is not possible in a sense, in a valid way, because the believer's body already belongs to the Lord through whose resurrection one's body has become a member of Christ by his spirit. You belong to the Lord, glorify the Lord, stay away from the prostitute. Now, that's what it says. This is the text, and we can understand the meaning. It says in Romans 12, 9, then we'll go to the applications, but I want to bring Romans in right here. Romans 12, 9 says this. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling. There's The reason I found this verse, cling be glued to what is good. And there again, the repetition of what it means to be joined to the Lord. Abhor what is evil, believe in the Lord, you're glued to what is good, which is the Lord. Does it mean there's no forgiveness, there's no redemption, there's, it's hopeless if you people have already failed in many different ways, but that God is calling us to the truth, and he forgives sins, and he delivers us from our enemies. The failures that I mentioned in Israel that happened with Solomon and happened in many other cases were based on uh, a failure to understand the implications of being in relationship with the Lord and a failure to listen to what God said. And the result would always be bringing the Christians over to the pagans. The paganization of the church, the, the harm that comes through the seductive forces in the culture and in the religious world out there that draw people away from Christ and away from the truth. So what happened in Israel, Balaam knew it, so Balaam put it to use. 
The world knows it. The world will put it to use. The cults know it. The cults will put it to use. There was a cult in the 70s that went down to South America, and they were using young ladies in what they called flirty fishing. And that's how they got people seduced into the cult. The group was called the Children of God. Remember that? Horrible things happened to a lot of people. And in a sense, it was like the Balaam thing. That's how you do it. That's how you get people cursed. You, You bring them into a world that they shouldn't be in. And then the cult grows. So we want to be clinging to what is good and holding on to the Lord and not let the wicked culture draw us places that will harm us. And we'll see that in some applications. I have three here. Number one, sinful passions which characterized our old lives must be put away. Number two, the prevalent pagan religious culture must not determine how we worship God. Must not determine how we worship God. Number three, we must live for Christ, not the wicked world we left behind. This may be obvious, but I, but it, clearly in the case of the Corinthians who had been taught by Paul, it wasn't that obvious to them because they fell into it. But it should be obvious. The, the pagan world is like a giant electromagnet, and if we're steel, it's pulling us. It's trying to, they can take a magnet and pull a whole car up in a junkyard and then drop it somewhere else when they turn off the magnet. The world is like this giant electromagnet pulling at the Christian, here directed to the Christian men. dragging, pulling. And we need to be so joined to the Lord, it's not going to pull us. But the only way that happens is he keeps us. God keeps us, and we'll see that. Because we don't have the power, but God does. He keeps us. Now let's look at Galatians 5, 24 to 25. Belonging to Christ implies crucified passions. Galatians 5, 24 to 25. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Now, I preached through Galatians a few years ago. I think it's on our GGF website, the, the series on Galatians. There's some misunderstandings about what it means to have crucified the flesh, but let me make the the basic point that we preached on back then. Crucified flesh isn't a higher order version of a second blessing that some Christians have. It's what happened when we were converted and God and we took us to himself. We died to the world like Israel going out of Egypt. They go out the cloud in the sea, we'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 10. They come and they're brought to the Lord. So many times we need to be reminded of what God already did 
and re- being reminded of these things is the hope and the faith and the power to actually change. I believe in means of grace, not doing more and trying harder. God reminds us of what he did and who we are because in that belief in the truth, God changes us. We wish it happened quicker. We wish we were better. We wish we were less tempted. We wish we fell less often and that we would stand strong. But there's a God does it. He does it. Don't give up. Don't feel hopeless. God does it. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let me read Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Sanctification is grounded in the promises of God and what he did for us. And you might think, well, if that's the case, by the way, it is the case, then why did Paul have to write to these Corinthian men not to go to the temple prostitute? It should be obvious. Here's the answer. The speaking of the truth from the word is a means God uses to ground us in what he already did. That's what Paul's doing. He says, he who's joined to the Lord is one spirit. You can't do this. Here's why. You believe it, and we pray for one another, and we stand firm, and God changes us. And we don't live like we used to. It's a, it's a work of grace. It's not higher-order Christians. So being reminded that you're crucified with Christ. Now, in Galatia, they thought, well, maybe we better reinstitute law-keeping, law works. But um, there's a good reason to think that that won't solve the problem because they had the law under the old covenant, and even the kings went off after the strange flesh. And Paul is pointing to Christ. So sanctification, which is based on the word in the Greek for holy, being made holy or becoming holy, is both positional, those who are in Christ are saints. When Paul writes to a church, he writes to the saints, that means Christians. And it's practical. Giving these instructions help us know what it looks like to be different. Why we need to be different. And how God will always empower us to be different and we will take the do you not know, and actually, yes, I do know. Thank you, Lord. There is newness, and I need to, by God's grace, walk that way. I have a statement I wrote here in my notes to share with you. The old passions and desires are no longer the masters of the Christian. This does not mean absence of temptations or wrong desires, but the knowledge that we cannot allow them to draw us away from Christ. In Ephesians, Paul told us to lay aside the old self and its deceptive loss and put on the new self, 
actually hearing this, studying it, preparing to preach a sermon on it, for me, brings it right home. This is what it looks It makes us long for the return of Christ, for sure. But also for him to do a powerful work of grace so that we can walk in the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, what does that mean? It means we are born of God. We wouldn't even want to hear any of this if we were pagan. We wouldn't. The pagans will just say, you're nuts. Well, you go to a place and listen to people preach this sort of stuff and read that kind of a holy book. Nuts to you. We can go do anything we want. Nobody's going to stop us. Nowadays, not even the civil government. A little comment there. When you do anything to me, I'll go do whatever I want. But if you long to live out what it means to be joined to the Lord, that's a good sign. It's a sign of salvation. Live by the Spirit. That's the only reason we have life at all. Then we walk that way, live accordingly by God's grace. We don't ever give up. When Peter denied the Lord three times, he didn't give up. He ended up back in repentance, serving the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. As we go to the next point of uh, application, live sanctified, honorable lives. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. From the North American Standard Bible. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Further, see, you see, as Paul wrote to different churches, whether it's in Asia Minor, in Greece, he wrote to Rome, and so on. In each case, they're looking at similar issues. The way life was lived in Asia Minor, in the various churches, for instance, that John wrote to in the book of Revelation, the early parts of that, some of the things that happened there in Rome, in the Roman Empire in general. What is going on is that the world they lived in didn't see anything wrong with what the Bible says no to. Does that make sense? The world they live in was saying, this is what life's about. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why are you telling us we can't do what everybody else does? Why are you like this? But that isn't, the point is that we're now different. These are the things God forgave us for and and saved us out of and delivered us from. And those who are raising children are very concerned and heavy-hearted because we see how bad the world is and how wicked things are. And we can't count on the adults in their world saying no because we're getting more and more like ancient Rome 
in ancient Asia Minor in ancient Greece. And we need to teach the Word of God because they're not going to hear godly things unless they hear it from the Bible and those that are teaching it. Abstain from sexual immorality. Not in lustful passion. The world says, whatever inclinations you may have, that's your reality. Just make it your choice. Just identify with whatever it may be. Um, no, that is not good because it will destroy you. The th- we saw that earlier. Paul says, all things are lawful, but I will not allow those things that are lawful to be my master. I, I preached that for 1 Corinthians 6. There's two strong words here that are translated lustful passion. Pathos, we can see that. We still use it in English. Pathos and epithumia, which is the prefix uh, epi, and it would be a strong desire, a very strong desire. And so literally the Greek says passion of lust. Sanctification is the opposite. It's the opposite. Don't let anybody say they've already uh, have perfection or they've already become free from all desires and they've somehow achieved entire sanctification now because it's not true. It's, it's not reality. It's, it, it really causes worse problems. Because then you don't, you're not aware of this and on your guard against it. Until the resurrection, we're all prone to these things we need to run. In fact, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. There's, a, I'll give you a preview. The way you get out of trouble is you got to be like Joseph. Flee. We don't stand saying, well, what's the, the story about the kid looking through the window and he's not supposed to have the chocolates or the cookies or whatever? What are you doing? Resisting temptation. No, you flee. The fleeing, as Joseph did, is the reality that we're still needing to be delivered from evil. What does it say in the Lord, the Lord's Prayer. Deliver me from the evil one. Leave me not into temptation. Why would we pray that? Because we're not overconfident in our own selves. We need the Lord to help us. Again, Dr. Feox wrote a commentary on Thessalonians. He says, this word group with its decidedly moral overtones exclusively belongs exclusively to Diaspora, Judaism, that would be the Jews that were scattered amongst uh, the dispersion away from Jerusalem, and early Christianity. He says this, Nowhere in known pagan literature is anyone concerned with holiness or holy living. That really struck me. Nowhere in known pagan literature is anyone concerned with this. They don't write about it because they don't see it as a problem. That's why it's unique to the Bible. Here's my statement on this. 
the pagan world boils over with every kind of lustful passion and sees Christian teaching on the topic to be absurd and repressive. The truth is, freedom in Christ is true freedom, not bondage that leads to destruction. Even in this life, such living takes a horrible toll on many lives. And I've heard from quite a few different people over the last, oh, I don't know how many years, but as uh, the critical issues goes out, I hear from people who said they've, their friends, people that they were in Christian ministry with, people that they fellowshiped with, people that they knew in the various movements we were in, story after story of persons who walked away from Christ, rejected altogether part of the Jesus movement in the early 70s. I guess there's a movie out about that. Then they say, well, whether it's my wife or my friends or my brother, people say they went, they ran away, and it got so bad. And I heard stories myself from people we knew. It was so bad that Christians who run away from God end up in worse state than the average unbeliever. And sometimes come to horrible ends. We don't want that to ever happen to anyone we know or love. I have a statement here. We are set aside for God, and serving him by his power and grace is honorable and not degrading. No one of us will ever regret serving God, trusting God, asking him to help us when we fall, getting back up, resisting the world. No one regrets that. But how many regret what happened when they ran away and went their own way? And those stories are so horrible and tragic, but it does happen. One last passage, Titus 2, 11 through 13. This, this is reiterated a lot in many of the epistles, and there's a reason, because that's what the world looked like to the Christians in the first century, and it's what the world looks like to us right now. As we read the newspaper, I guess people don't do that anymore. Watch the news or whatever. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, we are waiting for the blessed hope. Christians have always done that. Someone tries to say, well, you're an escapist. You're such a mamby-pamby wimp Christian that You want Christ to return. I don't buy that argument. If Paul was looking for the great, the blessed hope, John was, look at Maranatha, look at the ideas here. I'm glad we sing about that. Yes, we are looking for the appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice the appearance. The word for appear 
uh, epiphino is where we get our word epiphany. Like in a, that's a verb, appeared, epiphino, and uh, noun epiphany would be related to that. The second use here is epiphania, which is where we get our word epiphany. And it's used for the second coming. So the appeared as a verb is what happened in the first advent. Jesus Christ came into our world. God the Son, the creator of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, the virgin-born Son of God, the eternal Lagos, came into our world. The things the Bible says about him are historically accurate. He really is the sinless Savior. He really is the Jewish Messiah and the Messiah for all people who come to him. He is who he claims to be. He did live a sinless life. He did walk on water. He did raise the dead. He did heal the sick. He did many things that demonstrated his deity, and he lived in a way that demonstrated his true humanity. The God-man, the unique one, the only begotten, the only one of his kind, he, in his life, the epiphany, the appearance of God, died for sins once for all. He shed his blood once for all to pay for the sins of all who would come. Sufficient for all, efficient for those who actually believe. It's not teaching universalism, but the need for the blood atonement. He predicted his own bodily resurrection from the dead. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to many witnesses. He taught after his resurrection. Those who heard him explain everything from Tanakh, including himself. Tanakh is the Jewish term for the, what we call the Old Testament. And they said, weren't our hearts burning within us as we heard him? He bodily ascended to heaven, and he promised to come again. In the meantime, we preach the gospel. What is that? The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I told you who he is, what he did. Let me tell you why we need him. The wrath of God against sin is real. The lies of the world, that it doesn't matter what you do. There's no consequences. Do the best you can. Find happiness now. And that's all there is. Everybody goes to heaven if there is one. How they look at it. It's a lie. We either come to him and participate ultimately in the resurrection of the righteous, or we reject him and face his wrath for all eternity in hell. Resurrection of the unjust, the unrighteous. That's why we need him. What's he expect of us? Very simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent means to turn. To turn from serving self, the world, the flesh, ideologies, false religions, movements to solve every problem, which obviously can't be done, and turn to him, believe in him, believe his promise for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the gospel. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and 
you will be saved. And he washes away the guilt. We talked about a lot of things that are heavy and wicked that we don't like to think about, but they're real, they're out there. We've all failed God. He washes it away. He gives us the power to be new. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that though these things are appalling in some ways that we've seen described in the Scripture, they're for our good that we might know to turn and flee from such things. Give us grace to be solid in our uh, cleaving to you, clinging to you. We pray for one another that you give us strength to live for you. We pray that people, more people will hear the truth and come to you. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints, for your precious promises, for our eternal hope. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.